Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Uh, welcome to Democracy-ish. I'm Torre. And I'm Danielle Moody. And we got a special guest this week, Adam Serwer. Say hi, Adam. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. I wanted to have Adam on after I read yet another of his brilliant pieces. They're always brilliant. Thank um, you. In The Atlantic, the coronavirus, it's titled, The Coronavirus Was an Emergency Until Trump Found Out Who Was Dying. <laughs> yeah. And part of me has been wondering, is it kind of a, cla- there's clearly a shift of like, you know, he called it a hoax. And then he was kind of worried about it for a little while, even though he was still on the nothing to see here tip. And then it was definitely like, the cure cannot be worse than the problem. We have to get back to work. And mm-hmm. a lot of people started saying like, you know, that shift happened the, almost the moment that we started to realize, you know, statistically that black and brown people were suffering and dying from this far at far greater rates than, than white people. Um, and Adam's piece really nails that down in a more intelligent way than anything else I've seen. And part of it, you bring in this Charles Mills notion of the racial contract. Can you just Mm -hmm. unpack the racial contract before we get to the meat of the piece? Yeah, so uh, Charles Mills wrote a book called The Racial Contract, which I really highly recommend uh, everyone read. It's just a, a really fascinating work of political philosophy, which has been very influential on me. Um, but the idea is basically that we, you know, a society has explicit written down rules. And then underneath those rules is a set of tacit rules that say that these rules apply in a particular way to white people that they don't apply to other people. Um, and the, the, the general example I give of this is, for example, the Declaration of Independence, which says all men are created equal and which is, you know, has been interpreted by subsequent generations to mean uh, man as humanity, all people are created equal. But at the time, when you look at the constitution and you look at people who had, who had basic rights, right to vote, et cetera, uh, it really meant white men with property. Um, so that's an example of something that is superficially universal, but actually has a sort of tacit uh, underlying racial meaning that doesn't apply to say black people in the same way that it applies to white men. And you could see that pretty much the way that that works out in modern society all the time. I mean, you look at like stand your ground laws, for example, you're much, when you look at the statistics, you're much more likely to get off uh, under a stand your ground law if, if, you're, if you've killed a black person. Um, you know, the, when you look at the way that, uh, you know, police responded to the Tamir Rice, they immediately shot him on sight, even though he's a 12 year old with a toy gun. But, you know, it, you can have a, a, a semi-automatic rifle on your back and walk into a state legislature quote unquote protesting 
Um, and obviously no one's going to harm you uh, if you're white. I mean, the, the, the terms of the racial contract, as I put it in the essay, are pretty much there for everyone to see it. Um, but it's something that exists almost unspoken and unacknowledged um, because that's the only way you can have a society where everybody is supposed to be equal, but everybody knows that certain people are not and you treat certain people differently uh, based on who they are. So do you think that there was a conscious shift in the White House? Like numbers started coming out of, you know, Detroit and DC and New York, that black and brown people were getting this and dying from this much faster than white people. And, you know, do, I mean, do you envision like Stephen Miller, like running down the hall with a piece of paper, like boss, like send him back to work. Cause it's just the Negroes who are dying. We're okay. Like, <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, I think Stephen Miller, it has been obviously shaped by white supremacist ideology. That's not news. I mean, that's, you know, what we've seen in his own emails that he exchanged with uh, a young woman who worked for Breitbart, who was, you know, in the alt-right movement and left it and then gave her, uh, gave a big hard drive of emails to the Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, I don't think, I mean, one of the things about the racial contract is it doesn't need, you know, it doesn't need you to think about it to work. You just sort of understand you are socialized to act a certain way. And I think that, you know, it doesn't, uh, it, it doesn't necessarily need to be the case that, the White House was thinking, oh, this isn't really a problem for white people, so we don't need to worry about it. I think that when when issues become racialized, people act in that way, even if they don't consciously think about it. Like, you, there was this, uh, you know, there was, uh, in Wisconsin, you had this um, Supreme, you had this state Supreme Court case over the legality of the governor's stay-at-home order. Um, and, the, and when the government's attorney for Wisconsin, the state's attorney, was discussing how there had been an outbreak in a, in a particular county in Wisconsin, and he mentioned that it had been in, 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 a, in a meatpacking uh, factory. Um, the Chief Justice interrupted him to again repeat that it was meatpacking workers, and then she specified it was not quote unquote regular, regular folks. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe she didn't mean Oh, that she meant it. She, oh, she, that she specifically, meant it. maybe she didn't specifically mean Latino people who, who make up a, a disproportionate number of meatpacking workers are not regular folks. Maybe she just meant this is a high risk job. But either way, she's separating out these people who are at high risk of contracting the disease and saying they don't really count for the purposes of this law that is supposed to protect everybody. And to me, that reflects a particular calculus. It says, uh, you know, this emergency is only affecting certain people to the degree that it is an emergency. And so, you know, to me, it doesn't really require an extraordinary measure um, the extraordinary measures that we're taking, you know, in order to combat the spread of the virus, particularly since it's inconveniencing me, a regular person who is not at risk in the same way. Um, you know, so it, 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 I don't think that there's necessarily, you know, conscious malice involved, but I do think it, it, it and I think Mills, when you read his book, he, he, he's very good at like outlining how this works in different contexts how it works throughout history. This is really an intellectual framework that underpins, you know, the history of Western civilization. It's not something that, you know, that just like appeared in the last 50 years or something like that. And it's not just something that happens with conservatives. I mean, you can look at, at New York, you look at police hanging out, handing out masks in Central Park on a sunny day, and you could see them, you know, slamming a guy to the, to the sidewalk uh, in East New York. So, I mean, like, th th this is not a thing that just exists. It's not just a Republican thing. It's not just a conservative thing. It is a thing that 
as you know underpins the way our society has been built, which is why it's uh, it, it's a problem that persists in almost any context. You know what what troubles me though, I think that when we don't call out the intentional malice, like I, I have recently uh, have gone after several cable news anchors for 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 insinuating that it's not that the Trump administration is evil, it's just that the policies that they are putting forth are not benefiting all people. And I think much as you are a writer, as a writer, words are important and they matter, right? And so. Um, <laughs> And so it is incredibly important, I think, to understand that you don't create policy out of the goodness of your heart. You create mm. it out of, well, at least Republicans don't create policy out of the goodness of their heart. They create it for who it's going to benefit, namely the people that are their donors and their base and what have you. But as mm. I was reading your piece, and I don't remember if you, and so tell me if you did mention it in there, because I don't remember if you did. But what, what keeps coming up for me, especially after the murder of Ahmaud Arbery, after the murder of Sean Stiller, uh, Breonna Taylor, um, is the fact that white Americans don't have to abide by the fact that black people actually have rights, like rights to exist. And what comes up for me is, you know, in the Dred Scott decision, in, uh, in 1857, where they said that black men have no rights, right, by which a white man should have to abide. And I think that that, that presumption has been ingrained in our democracy, has been ingrained in our culture so much so that when these white folks are out there protesting their right to go to the gym and to get a haircut, it's like, I don't have to, and to go to Red Lobster and to go get a tattoo apparently in Georgia, because that's open. Cause that makes sense. Um, <laughs> that I don't have to care that you are dying. I don't have to care that you don't have health care. I don't have to care that you um, don't even make a living wage, but that your pure existence is for my betterment, right? Like I don't have to be concerned about whether or not I, I, my, my, my right to protest as a, as a white person, and I continue to say this, it seems to me to be about the right to oppress. It doesn't ever seem mm -hmm. to be about the, the, the right of what liberty and justice means, two different things. And your piece stood out to me because it was like, yes, if, if, that, if this administration had seen that it was their base, for instance, this was attacking rural communities, it was attacking the Midwest in the way that it was attacking quote unquote blue states, their reaction would be different. So I just, I want you to like, just talk about the, the way that we use language and the way that, uh, you know, opinionators like myself versus, you know, journalists who are supposed to be objection, you know, have, have, have you know, objectivity, how we have these conversations, because I do think that the decisions that this administration is making is out of malice. I don't think that that is like, and that is, that is, you know, just, just happens to be a, a benefit of the policy. I think it's, it's the point. Well, I would say that it, it, it almost doesn't matter whether it's malice or indifference um, in the sense that the devastation is the same. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so if, 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 whether it's because, you know, they just, they're worried about Trump getting reelected and, and, and they just want to restart the economy. And so they don't care who gets hurt by that or whether, you know, um, you know, I, I would describe certainly a, a lot of Stephen Miller's immigration policies as motivated by malice. Um, 
you know, it, it almost doesn't matter. The devastation is the same. As to your uh, point about racial citizenship, I mean, this is a, this is something that predates the Republic. I mean, you know, there's, there's, even during the Revolutionary War, you have some people in the North who, uh, who, are, who are looking at these principles of liberty and they're saying also slavery is wrong. And then you have other people who are making the point that America, the colonists are slaves to Great Britain, but also we do have African slavery, but that's okay. Right. Um, right. And so right. You, you, you have to, and, and at that point, you have to sort of come up with a framework for why Britain enslaving the colonists is bad, but the colonists enslaving Black people is good. And mm-hmm. so in that, you, you have the birth of this idea of racial citizenship, which is, um, you know, completely antithetical to the word of the American creed, but mm-hmm. inseparable from the way it has actually been executed. And something that I, I try to I t- tell people, you know, about the history of the United States is when you really think about it, you, America has only been a full democracy on paper since 1965. 1965 is the, is the first time that the right to vote is guaranteed on paper. And, and I say, I emphasize on paper because there are lots of different ways to disenfranchise people, sure. even with that commitment on paper. But it has only been 1965 since we, since we have been trying to have a genuine multiracial democracy for equal rights, with equal rights for all. So that project is actually pretty fragile. It's not as old as people think it is. And it's vulnerable. Um, and I think it's vulnerable to the kind of forces that we are seeing being empowered right now. I think a lot of what's happening on the right, I mean, I, I, they are constantly being shaped by race, even while they're claiming to be colorblind and that the left is the one that's actually obsessed with race, which is complete madness. But I feel like quite a lot of this is also a more relatively modern uh, right-wing GOP obsession, which is that media is wrong, everything media says is wrong, and everything that the left says is wrong. And when you start from that perspective, you kind of get twisted into different positions and when the media and the left are saying, this is very serious, we need to deal with this, uh, coronavirus, they are sort of stuck in a position of, nope, it's not, it's not, it's not a big deal, you know, and their only oxygen comes from saying, don't worry about what they're saying, go back to work, y'all, ignore them, because they are the tough guys, and we are the snowflakes. So when we're saying, stay at home, fear this invisible enemy, they're the tough guys who say, no, just go back to work. doesn't matter if some people die. Herd immunity will be fine in the end. In the, in the, I saw a video today, this woman screaming at people in a Trader Joe's. It's 99% success rate, recovery rate. If I told you, if you go into some place, there's a one in a hundred chance you'll die. You'd be like, you know what? I'm just not going to go there. I'm just going to take the smallest precaution. But this sort of sense of like, we are tough and they are weak sort of pervades this whole thing with them. And it's, it's, it's incredibly corrosive to the whole, the whole political conversation. So I think, you know, the, the sociologists have like a, a political scientists have a, a term for what you're describing, which is negative partisanship, which is like, every time the other side does something, the other side thinks it's bad, no matter what it is. And I think that's sort of a, a genuine problem. But I think you're right that you can't, despite this sort of profession of colorblindness. Um, I, I don't think you could really separate race from this conversation because when you look at something like immigration, right? Um, if you look at, when you, when you look at like 
the conversation about, say, admitting Syrian refugees, or you look about the conversation, you look at the conversation about stop and frisk, or you, you know, you you look at the uh, the conversation about uh, immigration at the border. There's all there's always this sense that any level of risk is unacceptable, mm. right? So when when it comes to restricting the freedoms of people who are not you, no level of risk is acceptable. There's none of this like tough guy stuff. Um, as far as you know, it, you know, if I die, I die. You know, life is it, it, you know, life is not about being coddled, et cetera, et cetera. At that point, it becomes you know, if we have to waterboard people, if we have to never let in another refugee again, if like every black man in New York uh, has to get stopped and frisked in his own neighborhood, then that is an acceptable risk for me. And I think that it that it's really sort of inseparable from the concept of race when you say my freedoms are inviolable, uh, even in questions of, you know, even in times of pandemic, even in times it, when it's sort of a minor inconvenience, even when it's sort of an optional, optional civic obligation thing, like wearing a mask, you don't wear a mask to protect yourself. You're right. wearing a mask to protect other people from you. So it's not right. like, it's, it's not a, an act of fear. It's an act of social responsibility. Right. Um, so when you say no restrictions on my freedom are acceptable, but any restrictions on your freedom are completely acceptable, regardless of what it does to you. I think it's it, that's so, and it's not that's not a partisan issue. That is a that is an issue of what Danielle was hinting at earlier in this conversation, which is that your freedoms are not as inviolable as my freedoms. Yeah. Um, and that is, again, it, that's that's not uh, you know it's that's not just about liberal or democratic, uh, liberal or conservative. It's not just about Republican or Democratic. That is a sort of a foundational conversation uh, of of American history, unfortunately. And it's one that, um, you know, the, I think everybody all, uh, sort of instinctively understood that the pandemic, or at least people of color instinctively understood the pandemic was not going to alter that dynamic. I think that one of the biggest misnomers about this pandemic was the idea initially that it was going to be the great equalizer. And I, every time, you know, it, it's, it's kind of, it, it, essentially saying that was akin to saying that the election of Barack Obama was going to make America post-racial. Like all, <laughs> all of it was steeped in bullshit, right? Because you can't actually have something that is going to be a great equalizer when we're not equal. Right. Like how, 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 how my body and how I'm able to fight off famine if I have an abundance of food in my fridge and pantry is going to be different from you who has nothing, who has like a handy snack in their pocket. Right. Like, and that's what you can afford. And, you know, we, we make these, I feel like America has been created on all of these wonderful ideals that Donald Trump and the Trump administration and Republicans have kind of exploded over the past three and a half years because everything that I thought was ingrained, I didn't realize was just a handshake deal, right? Like everything about our values and our morals and, and, and our compassion and, 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 you know, and this dream that everybody has the opportunity to get was, it's a handshake deal. America is a handshake deal, right? And what I find really frustrating in this particular moment is this pandemic requires you to have a level of compassion that I don't believe that white people in America have ever had, right? right? There right. is, there is a, there is a deep level. Everything is foundational to the selfishness that I believe is inherent uh, in, in America and in white folks here. You should do for me. You should build for me. Your body, you, breaking your body down for, for, the, 
for the building of this country and this economy is useful. You are of use. And when you are not of use, then you are expendable. But I'm not going to invest. You're not an investment. Yeah. You're, you're an investment for as long as you can serve me. And we can go back to slavery and have that conversation. And we can look now at people doing jump squat protests in front of a courthouse in Florida <laughs> and recognize and, and seeing that as well, right? It's what you can do for me. And when I talk about white selfishness, white people get very upset. Um, and I think you get, they get upset because it's like, well, you, you know, don't show me a mirror I don't want to look at. Right. Um, and I think that it's important, I think it's important to elevate that when we're talking about what is what is considered a protest for white folks again and what what is considered a protest for black people black america people of color we've had certain i've seen certain social scientists philosophers whatever talk about the reason why like countries like sweden can have the socialist programs the universal mm -hmm. health care and such is because they're all white yep. because the demonization of poor black and brown people has led people to say well, I don't want my hard-earned tax dollars to go to those lazy people. And that becomes a political breakdown. And why can we not uh, extend social programs out to them in the same way, um, which, you know, goes exactly to what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely a sense in which racism erodes uh, the civic bonds that Americans are supposed to have with each other. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that historically, you know, when I think, I, I'd say historically, um, you know, in some ways, it's really easy to, to look at Donald Trump, uh, who is a person who ran on an explicitly discriminatory platform and say things are, you know, really bad and they're as bad as they've, they've ever been. But I think, you know, on the other hand, you know, when you look at 1876, you look at the end of Reconstruction, you look at the end of this first early experiment with multiracial democracy in the United States, there was really not as many white people who were protesting about that experiment being over at that time, as you see today, uh, white voters being extremely resistant to Trump. Um, in some surveys, uh, white, there's like a certain segment of white voters who have become, you know, in some ways more socially progressive on certain issues than um, black people, which is like sort of a, a, an interesting cultural artifact. Um, but, you know, I think that, it's it's easy to get pessimistic, but in some ways, white Americans today are more racially progressive than they've ever been in history, um, in, in, in a way that I, I think we have not seen uh, in numbers ever before, and certainly not in 1965, certainly not in 1867, um, and certainly not in 1776. You... Um, I think that that doesn't mean that this idea of racial citizenship that is so foundational to the United States is not obviously shaping our politics in a very influential way. Um, but I think that, you know, one thing I don't want people to, to get the impression, I, I don't want people to get the impression that these things are immovable because I, I don't think that's true. I think they've moved quite a bit. Um, really though, Adam? Because yeah. I mean, I, I just, I, I asked the question because I try not to make overt comparisons between the civil right, between Jim Crow the civil rights movement and the Black Lives Matter and the and the ban of time in between all of that, right? Like I try not to equate, oh, we nothing has changed because I believe that obviously a lot has changed. But when you can still 
have two white men jump out of a, get into a truck, jump out of that truck armed and murder a black man who is jogging down the street. And you know, good goddamn well, you're not going to face you. You're, you're committing that act because you know that your whiteness is going to protect you. You know that your ties to law enforcement or even not, because we've watched folks, these, these white Trumpist militia, which is how I refer to them, storm government buildings, screaming in the face of law enforcement because they know that their whiteness is going to protect them. That hasn't changed. That reality hasn't changed that you can, as a white person, take a black life and know that you will not be penalized for that. You will, you will see no conviction for that. And so it's like, it, how, how do we understand and believe that yes, white people may in fact be more progressive than they are now, but when you can tell me that I just need to be respectful in the face of law enforcement and black people are just disrespectful and that's why we keep dying, but then I show you photos and videos of white people being absolutely and incredibly disrespectful to law enforcement and their hair is moved on their head, I just don't, I just don't under, I don't understand, right? Because it, it's hard for me in that moment to say, oh yes, we've come so far. Um, I think, so I think on the one hand, you're right. If you, if you somehow woke up Emmett Till, and you said to him, there's a prosecutor in Georgia who tried to prosecute a black grandmother twice for helping someone with a voting machine. And then also when he saw two white men chase down a black man who was running through their neighborhood um, and, and, and shot him down with a gun. And then he said, there's no crime here. He would say, yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's true. On yeah. the other hand, um, the video became such a scandal that Georgia had to do something about it. And there was a, there was a, you know, with certain notable exceptions, um, I, I believe it was like uh, there's people like uh, Candace Owens who are sort of trying to say that. Please don't I mean, let's not talk about ridiculous. let's not talk about Candace. Yeah, I don't, yeah. We don't she's talk about ridiculous. her on here. She's ridiculous. We don't well, talk about her on here, Adam. She's performance art. That's, she if she actually believed that stuff, I would feel differently. But she's just performance art. Yeah. But for the most part, conservative commentators were like, "Yeah, this is murder. There's, that that guy had no right to do that." Um, and so, in, in one sense. We are, we are still living in a world where someone can assume that they can just, uh, they can see a black person in their neighborhood, kill them and not go to jail. We, we, we are still living in that world where mm -hmm. someone can make that assumption. On the other hand, it is not a safe assumption. Um, and, and, and for the most part, it's going to be, con uh, and people, uh, um, Wait a minute, it's, Adam. It's, it, is so, it is such an explicit revelation of the racial contract that even people who tacitly approve of it when it is not so, when those terms are not rendered so explicitly, will say, this is something horrible. So How, is, that, is, that, is that not a tremendous amount of progress? Yes. But <laughs> there, there, is, there, there is, even in this situation, which is like incredibly bleak and incredibly resonant of 100 years ago or 150 years ago, there is a difference between the way that played out then and the way that it plays out now. You, you said that there, 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 there was an assumption that something should happen to them, right? When the video is leaked? Um, no, what I said was that on the other hand, 
when the video was leaked, there was such an outrage that yes. officials felt like they had to do something yeah. about it. Yeah. But, but, but when the prosecutor, the, pro the initial prosecutor who initially looked at that case, he saw the video, he saw, you know, he, 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 he simply decided, oh, the, there's no crime here. There's which, no crime here. Which, which mean, is, it, it just requires an incredible, the way I put it in my piece is like, it requires an incredible cascade of assumptions yes. um, that would just simply not be applied. <laughs> to a black person in the same it, it, I love the I actually really love sorry Tori I love yeah. the way that you put it in your feet like it requires like it literally requires you to detach your brain from your body and like and also your eyes right <laughs> and 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 to just you know because my my feeling about Ahmaud Aubrey and the feel and the idea that the that we are on our third prosecutor the idea that initially there was no crime here. You would hit a fucking dog with a car in the street and that would have been, con and, and, and leave the scene and that is a crime. Punishable by jail. But, but you would assume as a, as I imagine you would assume as a, as a rural, you know, an exurbian Georgia white prosecutor that a dog is innocent and you would assume that a black man is guilty. Right, you would assume that he was a criminal. We brought, we True. you know, we called. Right. We, call, we didn't bring him in. We called the McMichaels. They said he was a criminal. We didn't bother checking. Right, have there been any break-ins in this area? Is there any crime activity in this area at all? I just wonder how many Ahmads are there where there is no video, and mm -hmm. we would have never heard of this if if not for this video that got leaked out, which they thought exonerated. The McMichaels. Right. How many Ahmads are there? Would I mean, would we even be able to make an argument about these two guys that we killed this criminal who's running through our neighborhood? Like, would we be able to assume, no, you're wrong. Like, th there must be hundreds of thousands of Ahmads every Correct. year that we, yep. that, that we don't no, know nothing about. ever happens and just passes into history and nothing ever happens. We, um, and I think, you know, remember, we didn't hear about this one when it happened either. I mean, no. the national coverage right. of this happened weeks after the actual incident. But the other thing I would say is, it, it, it is a real, and this is a really important distinction here, it's not even that someone's, that the district attorney did not see a crime. He did not see something that was worthy of investigating as a crime. Right. Right? It wasn't simply that, you know, it went to a jury and the jury got deadlocked and they were like, well, we're not sure. No, that's not what happened. The guy looked at it and was like, there isn't even anything worth looking God into. God damn. We're all good here. Nothing yeah. to see here. <laughs> Two guys just and you know, shot some guy. It's all good. And the, re and the thing is, is that I also like to say that jogging as opposed to running, right? Because running makes it seem like, oh, this black man was running. What was he running from? Right. Like that's that's kind of the logic that they that they are playing with. No, the man was jogging, which implies exercising. And then the man who took the video said, well, his pants were sagging. So I thought <laughs> that there was something that was and I'm saying oh, what his he's running. His pants are sagging. So you assume then connect all the dots, like you said, the avalanche in which you would have to now, understand and suspend and suspend belief. He's but, a criminal. But now we have this like, second video, or second and third videos that are supposed to what cast aspersions on his character again because he entered an empty construction scene, and uh -huh. that that he took nothing does not matter, right? But that alone somehow cast aspersions on his character and somehow proves for some on the right that he 
he is a criminal because he who does that? like why is that a why is that a problem why is that even part of the conversation that he walked he briefly walked into a construction site where there was no one took nothing and left in under 30 or 60 seconds why is that even part should we also talk about how he went to 7-eleven before he started and paid for a juice like is that part of this conversation or what yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the reason I, I didn't want to get into an argument about whether or not he was jogging, because I, I think it's actually irrelevant to the question. I mean, who knows why sure. he was running? Um, it, you know, I have certainly like I, I here in, in San Antonio, there are a lot of stray animals. More than once when I've been jogging, I've seen an unleashed dog that suddenly looked very interested in me mm -hmm. and I hauled ass away because uh, <laughs> I, I don't want to get in a fight with a dog that hasn't been eaten in God knows how long. But you know, so you never know why someone is running. To assume that the person running mm -hmm. has just committed a crime is already right. like sort of an incredible assumption based on um, factors that yep. we can obviously only guess at. But uh, you know, I mean, it, it, the 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 sort of, I mean, like I said, it just requires so many assumptions, both about the person, about the worth of the person who is shot, and the worth of the people doing the shooting. It, th there's just so many things that have to go wrong in the assessment. Um, the, the idea that it's normal if you see someone running to get your son, arm yourselves and chase that person down in a flatbed truck. I mean, it's just, it's not, to see that as normal, justifiable behavior um, is really, I think, kind of extraordinary. And it only works under this, you know, the sort of unwritten rules that we've been discussing. Yeah. I, I'm wondering if the third man who videotaped all of this, if he's going to be arrested or not. He is in the midst of a huge, I mean, I guess, public relations effort. He's been in front of a bunch of interviews, super lawyered up, um, mm -hmm. trying was, to act like, no, I was trying to help Ahmad. He certainly did not release the video in, with, you know, in terms of saying like, I'm trying to help Ahmad. He doesn't seem to be trying to help him in the aftermath of him being shot. So I'm not sure why he's now emerging to say, no, 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 I was shooting the video in an effort to try. I mean, just in terms of visuals, I am not certain if the video, I certainly don't see a video being shot with a vigilante intent, but it doesn't also look like a murderous intent. But I can't, I can't tell from the way it's clipped why did you why did you start filming this moment i, I mean i i you know those are interesting questions that we may you know if if his uh crisis managers are doing their jobs we may never get the answer to <laughs> i mean the reality is is that why do you film why does it why does a, a white man film uh two white men executing in broad daylight uh, a black man i i'm assuming like entertainment right? Like I'm assuming you think that there is some type of there there because I assume the worst in most people. And I think that, you know, we would all serve ourselves better if we actually did recognize that racism exists. I don't, shouldn't have to provide you with video in order for you to believe that. I shouldn't have to provide you with the hundred years of documentation. I had somebody tell me the other day, white people have never done anything wrong ever. And I said, excuse <laughs> the fuck out of me. I don't know what you're talking about. Right. Like literally, have you never read a book? But, um, you know, the, the, the idea here, one, again, camera person, white, not arrested. Eric Gardner, 
the person who took that video, black person, was thrown in jail, was arrested. So I think that, you know, what, what is very interesting to me, Adam, is this idea that there is obviously a racial contract. There is obviously this racialized citizenship and the degrees in which our citizenship is valued based on our skin color. I just wonder, do we ever move past it? I wonder, because in order to recognize, in order to move past a problem or to find a solution, one needs to recognize that there is a problem in the first place. And I still feel like so many, uh, so many decades, so many years removed from the murder and gruesome killing of Emmett Till, like here we are still trying to convince people, still trying to use our platform and voices to convince white America that there are two separate Americas. And I'm wondering what you think that the responsibility is of journalists and folks like yourself to be able to continue to paint that picture that there is this there is this separateness and until we un, until we recognize until white folks recognize that this separateness exists and honor it can we only move forward so i mean personally i mean since trump got elected uh i, I basically the, the work that i've done at the atlantic in my mind is a, an attempt to uh, create a historical record of the precedents, both ideological, political, intellectual, uh, for Donald Trump. Because one of the things that really struck me after uh, November 2016 was the number of people were saying, um, you know, this is in America, this is in our country. And, you know, I wanted to be like, no, actually, this is this is a part of us. This is a part of who we've always been. And this is where it comes from. Um, so, I, you know, I view my responsibility as, as, as documenting these things as they're happening as clearly as possible and mm-hmm. also linking them to our past so we can understand where they came from and why they exist. Um, I, you know, obviously would like to live in a world where um, the ideological assumptions underpinning uh, the American caste system and the racial contract as Charles Mills describes it no longer exist. Um, but I feel like as a journalist, my role in that is actually just explaining why these things are happening the way that they're happening and Mm. with clarity, what precisely is happening, which I think Um, doesn't make me very different from a regular non-opinion journalist. But, um, I think sometimes, you know, uh, sometimes people think there, there's a big difference, but I think there's a difference in the way you do it, but there's not a difference in the fundamental uh, responsibility that you have. Adam, the piece of extraordinary, your work has been consistently extraordinary for years. So thank you so much for your contribution to the conversation. Much Much respect. Thank you guys for having me. Thank you, no doubt. Um, Adam Serwer, please read him at The Atlantic and on the Twitter and everywhere else. Um, Are you working on a book? I am working on two books, actually. Tell them. One is, uh, is, is a collection of, is an essay collection called The Cruelty is the Point. Um, the other is a history of the black vote since emancipation. Um, and so one of them will be out relatively soon, um, sort of end of of this year, early next year. And the other is going to take me a little longer. I like the cruelty is the point. I like that title. I I love it. And I already want to read it. And can I book you in (laughs) advance to have a conversation about it? I want to get you before Torre. 
no, it's no. Exactly what an aspiring author wants to hear from <laughs> from people when he mentions that he's writing a book. So thank you very much. Well, congrats. This this was amazing, and the article was amazing. And thank you so much for an much. engaging conversation. Well, thank you for listening to Democracy Ish. I'm Torre, and I'm Danielle Moody. And we'll be back next week. If there is a country. <laughs> Pray about it. Pray about it. Continue to pray, folks. Literally. Seriously. I don't care if you're an atheist. Just fucking pray. Thanks. Appreciate you. The praying to the gods of democracy. Yeah. I don't know who they are. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from Mac Blue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities. Healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country. Immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun. And candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.